you know, one of the things that I've said a lot, but I'm not sure how much people understand it really. I don't like singer-songwriters generally. It's not what I choose to listen to. It's not my first option. You know, I grew up listening to roots music or to jazz or to, you know, music uh, by... <laughs> I don't want to exaggerate this, but, you know, music by real people, by people from the earth, people who are not middle class, you know. And I don't, I've never, I don't think in history, you look back, I don't think there's that many examples of the middle class inventing anything you know, culturally. Um, so when I put on a tape and I hear, you know, well-educated white person strumming a guitar, you know, I'm looking at my watch and I'm saying, okay, I'll give this about another 15 seconds. <laughs> and then, <laughs> you know, unless the voice is really startling. And Nick Drake just grab me by the throat. And it's one of the great sadnesses and frustrations of my life in the music business that I wasn't able to figure out a way to get it across to people in his lifetime. Three records from sundown. Producer Joe Boyd remembers Nick Drake. The early days. In 1966, Joe Boyd, an ambitious young American, arrived to London hoping to make his mark in the thriving music scene. He produces the first Pink Floyd single, and he discovers the English folk rock pioneers, the Fairport Convention. Yes. But arguably, he makes his greatest find far from the streets of London. In Cambridge. Cambridge. With Nick Drake. Nick Drake. The English have such funny names for class. I would call him an upper-middle-class boy. You know, uh, the upper middle class always call themselves middle class. But, you know, the lower middle class also call themselves middle class. Anyway, he was definitely, went to a boarding school. He spoke with a very refined accent. Uh, he was part of a kind of uh, gilded youth generation of well-off upper middle class kids. And, you know, he was very talented in music. He started playing the clarinet. He switched to the guitar. His mother played the piano and wrote songs. And years later, I discovered, I heard tapes of his mother. And they're amazing. You know, they have these wonderful chords in the piano. And, and, you know, the style of the song is a bit you know, very English, very almost music hall, but upper-class music hall, Flanders and Swan, Noel Coward kind of thing. And um, uh, 
he started playing the guitar and he's just he was just I, I don't know where it came from but he developed a way of reproducing on the guitar the kind of chords that his mother played on the piano I heard him first because one of the Fairport Convention told me about hearing him at a concert in the Roundhouse. It was a Vietnam protest concert. And um, I followed up the lead and invited him to come in and bring me a tape. And he brought me a tape. And I put it on at the end of that day and just immediately knew that this was something completely different. A lot of retuning of strings so that he, he played in very unusual tunings. And his articulation of arpeggios on the guitar and the whole way he used the guitar to underpin his songs is completely unique in my view. I mean, it's, it's so strong and so central and so devoid of solos. I mean, there's nothing about guitar solos in there. It's just a way of orchestrating a song in a complexity that is staggering. Three hours from sundown Jeremy Hoping to keep the sun from his eyes East from the city and down to the cave In search of a master Witch season imprint on Island Records. The year is 1968. Drake is 20 years old. But Boyd's new talent is beyond reticent. In his memoirs, Boyd writes In the years to come, I would get used to Nick Drake's way of answering the telephone. He was so shy as a performer when the circumstances were right. And the only the circumstance that I remember most clearly as being right was um, when the Fairport Convention played the Festival Hall, and it was very dramatic because they'd had a car accident, the drummer had been killed, and this was a reconfiguration of the group. So everybody was in their seats and respectful. And Nick came out, didn't say anything, played a song, people applauded, and then spent three minutes without speaking, retuning his guitar. 
everybody stayed silent. We played again, everybody gave him a big ovation. We got an encore at the end. And I thought, this is gonna work. And then you send him out on his own, you know, and there's a student union full of kids, and there's a bar at the back, and he doesn't say anything. He has no jokes. There's no chat. He just took me to his guitar. It takes quite some time. And he just, in those little intervals between songs, he lost everybody. And um, so we really stopped performing live. And there was no other way in England in those days to really break an artist. The middle days. At this point, all efforts to advance Drake's career would center on the recording studio. Boyd recruits engineer John Wood at Sound Technique Studio in London for Drake's debut album. The record, the record is called Five Leaves Left. The year is 1969. It's difficult to remember that there wasn't really a template for doing this kind of record in those days. To record a singer with strings or with a larger orchestral arrangement, but not in a pop way, you know, with a kind of dryish, intimate sound on the voice and, and doing it in a sort of tasteful way, it was not something that had been done much. And We'd already tried one arranger, the guy who worked on the James Taylor record, um, the first James Taylor record, and just hated what he did with Nick's song. Just didn't work at all. And, um, and Nick then said, well, I have this friend in Cambridge, Robert Kirby. And I went up to Cambridge to meet Kirby, you know, and I was a bit freaked out because I thought Nick is world class. So we want the best. We want world, the top arranger in London, whoever it is. We'll spend the money and we'll get the guy. And Nick was saying, well, actually, let's try my friend in Cambridge. He's 19 years old, you know. And I think, oh, no, no, I don't, you know. But I went up and met him, and I just liked the way they were together and the way I liked Robert, and he seemed to really, really love Nick and his music. And I just felt, okay, let's, let's just go with this. And so we did this first session, and the first track they did was Way to Blue, which I had never heard because it, he didn't have a way to play it to me, in a way. And I suppose I could have gone down into the room and just listened, but I tended to, you know, let John Wood be the guy running around moving microphones and messing around in the studio, and I sat in the control room. And besides, it was a climb, you know, the control room was upstairs. And, you know, you had to climb all the way down, all the way back up again. So I was just sitting up there reading my paper and listening to the strings rehearse. And you'd hear them, John would focus on one microphone, then another microphone, then another microphone, try to get that in. He'd go downstairs, move the microphone, move the chairs around. And I kept hearing these bits and pieces of this thing, and it just sounded amazing. But I couldn't figure out what it really did sound like. And then finally we got everybody in position and John got his sound he wanted on every microphone, every part of this six-piece string, string ensemble. And, and then he just pushed all the faders up. 
and we listened to this whole thing, and I just oh my god. Don't you have a word to show what may be done? Have you never heard a way to find the sun? Tell me all that you may know. Show me what you have to show. Won't you come and say if you know the way? I thought when we made the record, oh my God, the critics are going to love this. This is so, we're going to get headlines. And, you know, Melody Maker said that it was an awkward mixture of folk and cocktail jazz. So, I don't know. It's, it was very sad. sells fewer than 5,000 copies. Boyd is discouraged, but Drake is distraught. Seeking to build on what little momentum exists, Boyd urges Drake back into the studio. This would produce his second record, the album Brighter Later. The year is 1970. One of the things that influenced my, my approach to Nick a lot was the first Leonard Cohen album which I thought John Simon did a great job of producing. And um, one of the songs that I love it was So Long Marianne. And he has these girls mocking his line, you know, uh, sort of singing behind him, against him, in a kind of contrast in their brassiness to his delicacy. played me, Poor Boy, originally when he played it to me, that chorus line, oh poor boy, so sorry for himself, he sang that. And I said, I just had this idea right away, I just said, Nick, let's get some girl singers to sing that line, and then you answer at the end of that, that, that beginning of the chorus, you, you pick it up at the beginning of the chorus. He kind of looked at me funny, like, are you sure? <laughs> and I said, yes, I'm sure. Okay.
John Wood and I learned recording Nick very quickly that you just turn Nick off in the monitors because Nick's performance is always great. You know, you when we would record Nick with strings or rhythm section or, or whatever, um, even if it was out in the room, and when he recorded with strings, he recorded in the room, and this is different from the way people do things today. The tracks like Riverman, that's not an overdub string section. You know, that's Nick singing and playing guitar in the room in the middle of the strings. Gonna see the river man. So you're listening very carefully to everybody else. And you go for their performance. If you get a great take from the strings or the brass or the rhythm section or whoever the weakest link is, that's your take. You don't even have to listen to Nick. Then you listen back and you put Nick in and it just sounds fantastic. Because he was always just fine. His, those complicated guitar parts, he never flubbed them. He just never did. Despite critical acclaim, Brighter later sells poorly. In despair, Drake leaves London to move home with his parents in Tamworth and Arden. His behavior is increasingly erratic and reclusive. At his family's urging, Drake seeks psychiatric care. Detail. Around the same time, Boyd leaves London for California, where he accepts a job in the film industry. Nick Drake has a, a kind of reputation as a very solitary, lonely figure. What was it like? At odds with was the person you knew? Yeah, I mean, he was soft-spoken. He was hesitant, um, but he was—he knew what he liked, and he was had very good ideas. And he worked very closely with Robert Kirby. And uh, it was incredible fun to work in the studio with Nick, just because the material you're working with is so great, and the fact that it's not self-contained group. You've got to go out and put a group together to make these records one track at a time. The End Days In 1972, Drake records his third and final album, Pink Moon. The record consists mostly of just voice and guitar, and Drake does not ask Boyd to participate. Pink Moon sells fewer copies than even its predecessors. Soon thereafter, Drake suffers a mental breakdown and is hospitalized. Following his release, Drake and Boyd agree to begin work on a new album. 
sells his label stake in Island Records. One of his parting conditions is that Drake's recordings never go out of print. Never? Never. A second detail. After his death, Drake's recordings begin to find an audience. Fans make pilgrimages to the Drake family home in Tamworth and Arden. Drake's parents, Rodney and Molly, touched by the interest in their son, invite these visitors in and allow them to copy cassettes and home recordings of Drake's music. Over time, the Drake legend spreads. A combination of word of mouth and tape to tape. To tape. Is it surprising to you how popular Nick Drake's music has become kind of after his death and um, sort of a cult that sprung up around him? No, I mean, uh, I always thought he should be that popular. And my view was what took everybody so long. It's such a shame that people didn't recognize it in his lifetime. But, uh, you know, there it is, the music is there. When you deem me so high, when you deem me so high, when you deem me so high. You know, I don't know how to deal with questions like, oh, was it ahead of its time? Because I don't, I don't think so. It was very much, you know, it happened in that time and it was a set of influences that, you know. But I do think that. Uh, in a way, its failure at the time has been part of its success now in the sense that very few people, grow, you know, growing up in the 80s, they didn't have parents who were playing Nick Drake to death at them. You know, there's no films from the 60s with girls dancing around with flowers in their hair with Nick Drake as the soundtrack. I mean, it's not identified with that period. It is culturally um, unanchored. So um, it's free to be 
adapted and embraced by people from other generations and people, you know, who just come upon it. And they... It doesn't sort of say that I am from the 60s. You know, it just says I'm Nick Drake. Please give me second grace. Second face, I've fallen far down the first time around. Now I just sit on the ground in your way. So come. Come ride in my streetcar by the bay For now I must know how fine you are in your way And the sea she was I But she won't need to cry For it's really too hard for the fly